Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Zach Posner is a three-time entrepreneur turned investor. He is working to find ways that artificial intelligence can be used to positively impact the world. To that end, Zach is managing partner and co-founder at the Legal Tech Fund, which is the first VC fund to focus exclusively on legal tech. Founded in 2020, post-pandemic, the fund recently closed to $28.5 million, exceeding its goal of $25 million. The vision of the Legal Tech Fund is to bring together a community of the world's most forward-thinking experts and advisors to accelerate innovation in the legal world. In today's conversation, we talked about how this finance major came to invest in legal tech, the criteria he looks for when he's making investments, and his plans for the inaugural Legal Tech Summit coming in December. You don't want to miss it. Hope to see you there. Thanks for listening. Zach, thanks so much for making the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. Thrilled to be here. Yeah. So... It's nice to talk to another IU grad. We haven't had many of them on the pod, so it's awesome. Go Hoosiers. Go Hoosiers. So let's start by talking about the journey that took uh, an IU grad in finance, if I recall correctly, to starting the first legal tech venture fund, because it doesn't look like it was a linear progression for you. You didn't go to law school. I didn't see a lot of tech in your educational background, although maybe I missed it. So talk to us a little bit about that journey. I know you've spent time in education and other companies. What brought you to where you are? I don't know if there actually was a lot of tech that you could have done in your education background about when I was doing it. But uh, yeah, so so ended up having a lot of things come together nicely and you know none of which I could have predicted at the time. But graduated from Indiana, studied accounting and finance, ended up at uh, PricewaterhouseCoopers and was in a couple of different groups there, but they all had a focus on working with technology companies. And that actually led me to a role with a venture capital fund called Insight Partners. And that's where kind of I got the bug for, uh, you know, what was happening. This was in the early 2000s. And you were just starting to see SaaS software, which wasn't necessarily called that come to fruition at the time. But you were, you were starting to see software companies on the enterprise side really do neat things. To kind of fast forward, as you mentioned, I eventually jumped over and started operating companies. The first one was in K-12 education. And there we were helping teachers manage all of the data in their classroom. And, you know, that one, it kind of taught me a lot. The company, there was kind of a spectacular team around it. We we spread to about 12 million kids across the globe. That ended up getting acquired by McGraw-Hill Education. But what was happening besides like building a pretty awesome product and building an awesome software company it happened to be building software in a space where you kind of like help improve outcomes. And that was kind of a bug that I just continued to explore. The next company was in energy analytics and then ended up co-founding and, and helping a friend launch a company that was in the vendor risk space. And it was helping enterprises make sure that their vendors were keeping their data secure. Because as you were getting more and more data that was coming online, you know, that can create more and more challenges if you don't get that right. And that company ended up helping, you know, its primary cohort of customers was law firms. So we were helping a lot of the top law firms across the globe look at all of the vendors and making sure that as they're using more and more software applications, that they're keeping all of the law firm's data secure. And in that, 
I started to interact with lots of entrepreneurs in the space, realizing that there was nobody that really understood them from a venture perspective. There was nobody that understood the pain points that these companies were going to. You know, every vertical has its own unique challenges, opportunities. And that's kind of where the idea germinated. And and kind of from that, the next thing that I did was I started to make some angel investments in the space. And all of this came together where we just saw this glaring need that said, you know, in, in most every other vertical, you have these thematic or vertical oriented, vertical focused funds. And what happens is when you focus on one vertical, you get to be really good at that vertical. You get to build a community of folks that can help your companies around that vertical. And, you know, that eventually leads to more higher quality deal flow. And that eventually leads to higher quality companies, which leads to higher quality outcomes. And the whole thing is, um, it's kind of like a, a rising tide lifts all boats. And, and, and that was kind of the vision that we had is we can go out there. If we just focus on this one space, we can really be a value add to the entrepreneurs and let's go help them build, you know, achieve their full potential. That's kind of how we got there. Oh, it's a fascinating journey. Let me move back to Ingrade for a moment because you spent five years in the educational space building and ultimately successfully exiting the business. What are the two or three things you learned from that experience that you use to impart to your entrepreneurs now? I know it's a different vertical and there are different things to be learned, but there has to be some experiences you had that, that have informed your judgment and your advice to entrepreneurs you work with now. To somebody that spent time in both of them, they're more similar than one could ever imagine. What you have in both of these is A, a they have not historically been forward thinking on the technology side. B, most importantly, is some of the people that are responsible for procuring technology are not necessarily the end users of technology. So in education, the logical end user that you go to in your mind is a student, is a teacher. But in public school systems, those aren't the ones that have corporate credit cards that are buying the product and making the decisions on technology. It's, you know, folks in a district office. And so the challenge becomes and the opportunity becomes, how do you create a spectacular product for the end users, but also a product that fulfills the needs of that end of that buyer? And how do you accomplish all the challenges that come with procurement and, um, you know, and, and how do you make that happen? But, but the, the, so that, that was a key takeaway for education is the end user is very far removed from the buyer. And then the challenges that the district office has is very different than what the student is thinking about or the teacher is thinking about in a lot of cases. So that does sound very similar to the legal vertical. Yeah. I, I think that kind of like sums it up right there. You know, there's other characteristics of a customer. If you think about them, it's because they're not necessarily the most forward thinking space when it comes to technology. There's adoption challenges. But once you get adoption and, you know, the hardest thing with any of this is the change management and changing people's habits. But once you achieve that, so it's very hard to get into these customers, but it's also very hard to get out once the patterns have been built. So it's actually a pretty awesome customer profile, but there's very similar characteristics between the two. That's fascinating. I hadn't seen quite the same same parallel, but now that you describe it, it makes complete sense to me. So you just announced, I think, a month or two ago that you've closed your fund at $28.5 million. Congratulations. Thank you. You've got some themes that your fund looks to in terms of investment companies to your portfolio companies. Talk a little bit about what those themes are and how they impact your investment strategy. 
So we have themes and then we have, you know, some buckets as to how we're like segmenting companies because, you know, we think legal is actually a pretty big space. Most people think it's, it's kind of pretty narrow. So the way that we are bucketing the world is saying, you know, there's, there's three different buckets we think about. The first one is software that enables law firms. That can be operationally or that can also be the business of law or that can be the practice of law as well. Then we have software that enables clients. And let's think about the client as a corporate legal department, a business unit, or even a consumer. And then the third bucket is software that enables the regulatory ecosystem. And that is thinking a lot more about compliance. That is thinking more about like regulations. So those are the three buckets that we think about. And basically, as you go down that stack from law firms to clients to regulatory, your markets usually, you know, it seems like for a lot of the companies, they get a lot bigger as you go downstream. But the further downstream that you go, the more that you have the opportunity to change the roles and the responsibilities of everybody upstream. You know, so a great example is um, look at a company like actually a company that invested in us, a company like DocuSign. You know, the coordination of signatures is something that the legal department's doing a lot less of these days as that can now be extended out to the business units. And then the other thing that happens is the more that software can help downstream, the more that you can kind of make legal services accessible to everybody. Where, take that example of coordinating a signature is something that a paralegal law firm may have put together in the past that, you know, there would have been a charge that comes with it. And that means that somebody may not have been able to afford an attorney because of that. Where now with tools like DocuSign, that kind of changes everything. Right. I know you talk to probably hundreds of startups, given the activity that's in this space, and you select only a few. Other than making sure they fit within one of those buckets, what are the criteria you're looking for? How do you how do you go about selecting a company that you're willing to invest in? Probably the biggest criteria that, that, that we think about is almost like timing. But timing actually dictates a lot, like timing of the idea. And most of the entrepreneurs that that we interact with, they're pretty sharp people. They understand pain points, you know, which is what's a lot of time has driven them to to kind of launch their idea or their company. They have a pretty clear and articulate vision of what of what the future is going to look like. And the question is just like, when is that future going to happen? Because there's a time frame that we need to think about. And it's not because of the expiration of capital or something. It's more because if people are not going to jump behind an idea shortly, the company is not going to get the traction that it needs to continuously build their business, whether it's on the customer side, on the capital side. So if you look at the timing, and, and there's lots of ways to get around timing, like nobody has a crystal ball. So what you do is you have this hypothesis that says, hey, here's the software we want to go build. And here's why I think the world's going to want it, need it, and why the future world's going to look like the way that we want it to look. And, you know, lots of companies have that. And then the question is, which are the companies that can figure out how to go out and test that concept quickly? And if the concept's not working, let's kind of like shift a little bit. So the teams that think like that... are the ones that like, even if their initial idea was off, you know, because the timing wouldn't have lined up, it's like they keep moving and they keep iterating until they find the thing that the customers want. So in that simple word of saying timing, that also means, hey, you have a team that can think agilely. You know, if they think agilely, they can move quickly. You know, that usually means that there's technologists as part of the team, not as like an outsource firm that they're working with because they can make changes to the product quickly. So it's like, you know, from my end, like timing kind of like ends up leading to a lot of different things. 
And, you know, there's lots of different characteristics, but those are just some that we think about. How do you measure market receptivity to a particular idea? Because you mentioned that goes into timing. Is it a problem people actually have? Is it a problem that they actually want to solve? And are they prepared to solve it by turning over money? So I'll take you through a couple iterations that I would think about if it, you know, that, that I would certainly think about if I'm ever launching a company again is the first thing I would do is if I have a concept, I'd go out and I'd talk to a few folks and I'd bounce. And these are, by the way, these would be very specifically the end users, the prospective end users of the product. And I'd bounce it off of them and they would, um, they can react in a couple of different ways. They can tell you the idea is no good, which nobody will. And they can nod their head and be like, oh yeah, that makes sense. That's pretty cool. Like I'd be very interested in that if that was around. If that was around, then I'd probably want to use that. And I think that a lot of people like hear that and they nod their head and they get really excited. But people forget that a lot of people are just nice. (laughs) And it's really hard to tell somebody their idea is not good. And then the third component that I'll say is if I come to you and I give you this concept and you're like, what did you just say? Yeah, this is a huge pain point. I need this right now. Like, do you think you can get me something to use in two weeks? I don't care if it's on an Excel spreadsheet. (laughs) I just need something right now. Like it's that, and I'm even willing to pay you for it. In fact, let me find you some money to help develop this. But you see the different reactions. So so look, it can all start, you, you said, what would you do? I would start by, you know, and then when you find that, then I would go back a day later and say, okay, here's what this idea looks like on PowerPoint. Does this make sense? And they'd be like, oh, no, you missed this. It's not this. You got to move this over here. And I need I need access to, it would have to integrate in to get me data from here. Great. Let me come back the next day. Now let me go and find, now let me go and build a skeleton of a clickable prototype. Does this make sense? And then I'd go show it to five other people. And you continuously build like that. But do you get how like there's two different approaches? You can do what I just described. And in two weeks, you can have a pretty good, something that's probably been refined already five times. Or you can have your vision and you can say, I'm going to go hire a team to do this and we're going to come out in a year <laughs> and show it to people. Those are just examples. But this concept of like testing things quickly is kind of a very important, you know, that that's how I would focus on things because like it's great. Good ideas are great, you know, and one day the world will need your idea and want your, but like the question is when, you know, because if you're going to go out and hire a team of 20 people, and the world's not ready for your idea for a ton of different reasons, you know, how are you going to survive the next 10 years? Right. So I guess two questions. One, how many companies come to you looking for funding that go through this trial iteration process you described? And secondly, sort of picking up on the other point you made in the education context, how many understand the distinction between the end user and the people who are buying the product in the legal sphere? So we, we talk to a lot of companies, you know, we're out there pretty aggressively. Like we want to talk to every company in the space. Not all the companies that we're talking to are looking for capital right now. We look at it as these are like long-term relationships we're trying to build. We're not looking to like write a check off of a first conversation. Another venture capitalist had a blog post. He said he likes to, you know, somebody comes in and you have this chart and on one axis is time and one axis is progress. So, you know, if you come in and see somebody, you put a little dot right there and, you know, but then you come in again and you put another dot and you put another dot and then you can draw a line. And the, the, the title was like, we like to invest in, in lines, not dots. So I think that, you know, the, the, the first thing is these are long-term relationships. The long, you know, we, we like to get to know folks. We try to be as helpful as possible, even without investing. So we'll make introductions to prospective customers. We'll do all of that stuff as well. 
Today, I think it's 230. I've spoken to four companies today. One of them is doing $30 million in revenue. One of them is an idea and the other two are in the half a million dollars in revenue. So it's, um, it's not apples to apples, but I would say that everybody has gone through some iteration of this. And it's just a question as to how tight those feedback loops have been. But going back to the advice, the advice to, you know, myself, if I was launching a company would be keep those feedback loops as tight as you possibly can. Fair enough. What are the exit strategies you look for for the companies? Because obviously, as an investor, you're looking for a return on your investment. I presume you're looking for the standard exits, acquisition, IPOs, alternate investments. Is there a particular strategy you have as you look at companies as to how they're going to monetize your investment? I think you just kind of named most of the big ones. But for us, each investment is you know, its own kind of, uh, really every entrepreneur that we work with has their own set of aspirations. You know, I, I, I think our aspiration is that the entrepreneur gets to choose their path. So, you know, for some that may mean, you know, being acquired, for some that may mean, let's go build a massive public company and become the acquirer. So I think it's just entrepreneur by entrepreneur working with their goals. And, you know, we're, we're just trying to be a uh, supportive partner along the way. So there's been a fair amount of acquisitions in the legal tech space recently. Lutera, for example, seems to be buying everything they can find. Where do you see the legal tech space currently and where do you see it going over the next couple of years? So when people hear legal tech, the first thing they think of is, um, you know, historically, there have been a few large companies that have, you know, rolled up a lot of smaller companies. We think timing is also important for the fund. And we, we thought that you're kind of at an interesting inflection point because what you're seeing is legal apps that are being bundled into like the business units and interesting personal applications of legal applications. And we think that these companies have the capacity to be a lot bigger and kind of grow a lot quicker than companies in the past. So, you know, I, I think you still have your traditional acquirers and there's a cohort of companies that are going to go down that path. But we think there's a lot more opportunities that have ever existed before. I think you just announced or you, you're starting to launch the Legal Tech Fund Summit in December. Tell us a little bit about that and what's what's involved and what you hope to accomplish. Yeah. So we've seen lots of um, different conferences in the space and these conferences, they're all pretty awesome, but they're all primarily focused on sales and or marketing for companies to customers. And we're just kind of seeing this gap where there's almost, there was no conference that's focused on the business of legal tech. And with all of this activity, and and so that means there's no conference that's really celebrating innovation and celebrating kind of like the entrepreneurs and what's possible here. So what we're putting together is essentially a CEO summit that will bring together all of the leading companies in the space and the investors in the space, and then an entire cohort of the early stage companies that are kind of out there from pre-seed to series A. And there will be an extra emphasis and focus on those companies where those companies will actually be presenting on the stage in short increments about what they're doing and a quick overview of their business. And this is all a question as to how we can get the most amount of exposure as possible for these companies. So if you're one of these early stage companies that are applying and are kind of accepted and kind of get the slot on the stage, here are all the future companies that you can be teaming up with on a biz dev side. Here are the folks that will be acquiring you. 
And here's the entire capital community. And we're bringing everybody together in one room for three days to have these conversations. It sounds like an awesome idea. This is your inaugural summit, right? Yeah, that's correct. And these things happen in other spaces. And it's just spending the last couple of years exploring this space. It's, uh, you know, it's the event that we have just been looking for and it wasn't there. And we just want to continue to celebrate the community. And we said, this is kind of something that we can help to get launched. How has it been? You started the fund, I think, in November of 2020 or the fall of 2020, but post start of pandemic. So you've sort of grown up in the pandemic world. How has it been operating a venture fund? in the pandemic because so much of this is relationships. So I think that there's a couple sides to that, but one of it's a, a, a kind of like you're supposed to, um, you know, if you're a software company, you're supposed to use your own software to understand the pain points. You know, it's a concept called dog fooding. You know, you're supposed to eat your own dog. That's, that's what you're supposed to do. And I almost feel like this is an iteration for us where our team is remote and you got to remember we're an early stage investor. So most of the companies that we're looking at now were started maybe a year before the pandemic, but certainly a nice cohort were in the pandemic. And these teams, they never had an office (laughs) and they never hired people in one city. So we're kind of acting in a very similar capacity right now with partners in San Diego, in South Carolina, in South Florida, in New York. But what it's enabling us to do is kind of understand what these companies are going through, but it's also enabled us to take a global approach. So, you know, on any given month, we're talking to north of 100 companies, and I'd venture to say 30 of them are coming from outside of the U.S. or Canada. And, you know, those calls are back to back with the company that's down the street from us. So I think that it's giving us exposure into the entire globe. And by the way, there's interesting trends happening in different places. There are areas you could argue have more forward thinking laws that will enable more technology to come into the space of law. There are places like the UK or like Australia or uh, Canada. So it's kind of given us this amazing exposure and all these companies, you know, we're putting them all in the same bucket. We, we meet with them in the exact same way. We talk about them in our team meetings in the exact same way. So I think that it's opened us up to a much more global approach than we would have been thinking about. And one thing that we've certainly seen is that talent's pretty much evenly distributed across the globe, but opportunity's not. And we think that this is a way for, you know, there's definitely entrepreneurs that we have backed that otherwise we may not have gotten to. That regulatory framework you talked about is an interesting dynamic in all of this, isn't it? You listed the countries that have been far more receptive to investment and the utilization of people who are not trained as lawyers to provide legal services. And yet in the States, which is a huge market, I presume, for your startup companies, you see a mishmash of regulations ranging from Utah to the recent announcement by the ABA that, you know, a pox on your house if you let non-lawyers invest in your business. Where do you see the regulatory framework sorting out and what impact does that have on your portfolio companies? So it's not really an impact on on our current portfolio companies. It's more an impact into like the types of ideas that come into us in the future. You know, we've seen, you talk about Utah, Arizona's got some similar things as well that talk about ownership. And, you know, we've definitely spoken to two or three companies in the past week that are formed in Arizona very specifically. And and those companies may not have existed (laughs) or they may not have come to fruition if had it not been for some of these sandboxes that are there. But I think even beyond that, you know, COVID created its own set of changes where we, if you just look at something really simple, like the online use of notaries, I think that you went from like 
sub 20 states to basically 40 plus states that can use online notaries. And right now there's something being debated in Congress that would just, the whole country can use online notaries. So I think that all of this, all of this changing regulation is just going to create more opportunity and more companies. But I, I don't think it necessarily affects our existing portfolio as much as what, you know, the next cohort of companies that, are, that kind of come to us. Fair enough. You talk about COVID and the impact. Back in March of 2020, you posted a, f- a fabulous post on medium.com where you had a number of your entrepreneurs talk about the impact the pandemic was going to have on the provision of legal services and legal tech. And let's let's talk about a few of them now. Now we're what feels like a lifetime since that since that <laughs> since that date. So, for example, Ed Walters, uh, who was on the podcast, said courts will finally become services and not places, which I've heard Ed talk about before. Since he wrote that, and for, and for those that are unaware, what we did is we we went out and we asked a cohort of entrepreneurs, you know, some of the leading entrepreneurs. We said, "Hey, how do you think COVID is going to change things?" and uh, we, of course, went to Ed because we think that we look at him as like almost one of the greatest thought leaders out there in this space. And he said that line and that has stuck with me. And I've thought about that almost every month <laughs> since that. Yeah. Let's stick on that for a minute because it's a fascinating thought that Ed has had because we think of courts as a place you go, the courthouse, the judge sitting on a bench in the robe with all of the pomp and ritual around it, yet it has a dramatic impact on people's access to justice and their ability to resolve disputes, particularly smaller level disputes. And technology can clearly enable adjudications and and the court's functions in a very different way. How do you see that playing out? And that's, that's sort of COVID related. It gave a kick to this. Yeah. But to me, that's a key part of the A to J problem. Yeah. Not directly related, you know, but Today, we were talking to a company, online depositions, how you have technology that helps with the stenography process, how you have, um, there is a, uh, you know, the, the, the whole concept of taking the courtroom online and using Zoom. And, um, you know, we, we, we've seen examples of that all over the country. I think that's happening. I think for, you know, and, and I think that all of these things are here to stay. I don't think that they're necessarily, they're not getting put back in the, uh, in the bag, for lack of a better term. Although there's a tendency to want to revert back to what we view as normal, isn't there? You see it in remote working, this generational divide between the younger cohort wanting to continue to work remotely, the older cohort saying, well, what about the culture of the organization? I could see it happening in courts as well. How much do you think it will stay the way it is and how much will it snap back? I just heard a great quote a couple of days ago. The excitement of a CEO to bring the team back into the office is very much correlated to the length they have left on their office lease. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. Next time you talk to somebody that's gung ho about the team, like returning to the office, (laughs) you know, you, you, you should ask that as a question. And the folks that are pushing their look, everything that we're talking about was a long term, was a trend that was already on its way. And you had an acceleration of all of these trends. And maybe the gas doesn't get pressed down as hard as it would have, you know, uh, you know, maybe like we lighten up our foot on the gas for some of these things. But I think that once people have had a taste of these things, and once things make more logical sense, you're moving in the direction. I, I can't get the timing perfectly. Yeah, I mean, it depends the application and what you're thinking about. But, you know, some things will take longer, but 
I, I don't know. It doesn't seem like we go backwards in a huge way in anything. It seems like it's just constantly a march forward and um, sometimes a run forward and sometimes a march. So march. Fair enough. Well, Zach, I want to thank you for your time. If people uh, want to get more information about the fund or contact you, how do they do it? Legaltech.com. That's the easiest way. And then uh, feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn or any, any, any other place you see me online, but legaltech.com. And uh, yeah, please, uh, especially the entrepreneurs, please stop by and say hello. And good luck with the summit in December. Zach, it sounds fabulous. Thank you. And thank you for your time. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.